Hey, it's Michelangelo Caruso. We're here for another podcast episode, the Talk to Me podcast. Uh, my special guest today is Brittany Woodrum. Good morning, Brittany. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Michael. It's good to see How you. How are you doing? I'm good. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, let me give everybody the lay of the land here and we'll get started with our conversation about this amazing thing that you've done. It's a very unusual achievement and uh, I can't wait to learn more about it. Um, if you are watching this video on YouTube, you know you can listen to the podcast version of all of these interviews on the Talk To Me podcast, which is available on iTunes and Podbean, etc. If you're listening on Podbean, you can watch the video version on YouTube. So there you go, both formats. Brittany M. Woodrum is, uh, is practically famous uh, in climbing circles because she's done something, yes you are. I saw, I saw your media man. Have you Googled yourself lately? No. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's very a lot of pictures of mountains. <laughs> she climbed the, uh, all 58 of the 14,000 footers in the state of Colorado, everybody. This campaign is called the 14er among people in the climbing circle. What year did you do this? Recently, yeah? Yeah, I actually just did it this past summer. So started on July 10th and finished on September 26th. So you did it during the pandemic? Yeah, exactly. And, and actually it was as a result of the pandemic. Okay, so I don't need to ask if you were socially distanced on the mountains. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get almost more socially distanced than um, out in the wilderness, but definitely was still taking precautions, wearing masks while hiking and also, oh, wow. um, before I even started on the project, I took care to do all kinds of preparation to limit the amount of times that I ever had to go into town. You know, always camping, did a lot of food prep. I think I only went into a grocery store like three times the entire summer. So oh, wow. I was really trying to be conscientious about the impact I was making. And you had such an unusual backpack. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. Uh, I wanna talk about your name because I read that you're, a lot of people call you Bert, is that true? <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think out whenever you do a lot of these longer hikes, so I consider myself a, a through hiker, you often adopt what's called a trail name. So I have a number of names that people call me. Um, and over the years, um, I don't know, Brittany got shortened to Brit and then a quick switch of the letters turned to Bert. And then now that's the name that just keeps giving. I have people who call me Bart or Brett or Bort. So I pretty much respond to anything at this point, but yeah. Well, I called or, you Whitney a minute ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and don't I even know. get me started on actually writing my name. So <laughs> I happen <laughs> to know the term through hiker because I've uh, I'm a vicarious hiker. I, I I don't I don't do well in altitude, but I've I've spent a lot of time on the Mount Everest campaigns and uh, climbing disasters and what teams work best and all this kind of stuff. I, I have also interviewed a few. I interviewed a guy named um, Cave, Andy Cave. Do you know the name? No, what did he do? Um, I can't actually remember the, the, what he's famous for, but he's in Wiki. Uh, it turns out everybody that if you climb a certain mountain in a certain speed, you know, you, you've yeah. notched your belt or whatever and you, right. you achieve the Pantheon. And he, he did that. He also yeah. wrote a book about it. Um, I've also met a guy who, uh, I, I assume he was a Sherpa in um, Indonesia. And he climbed the same mountain X number of times, and that's his claim to fame. 
But I also interviewed a guy named Herb Klotz from Rotary World, and Herb hiked, has hiked 95% of the Appalachian Trail. Oh, nice. And he's the one that explained to me initially what through hiking meant, that, that you don't do pieces of it, you would do the, the entire thing at the same right. time. And you've, you are not a through hiker on the Appalachian, is that correct? I am. Yeah, I through hiked the Appalachian. Oh, you did? Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a monster achievement as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a long one. <laughs> and it's my eventual goal to do all three. So if you do the three big ones in the US, it's called a triple crown. Right, so, it's a, a Pacific Coast? That's right. Yeah. PCT, is it called? Yeah, the PCT. and The then Appalachian? The yeah, the Appalach- Appalachian. And then the Continental Divide Trail, which is okay. through Colorado and Montana, and like the middle of the US, more or less. Am I saying Appalachian? You can say it however you want. I'm from Kentucky, so um, I think that's just how I learned to say it. I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains, but well, if you're from Kentucky, you don't know how to pronounce anything. Exactly. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, how does a Kentucky girl, or as Neil Diamond would say, a Kentucky woman, how right. do you end up in Colorado? Um, great question. So, well, first. I, I went to university uh, in Kentucky, graduated in 2015, having studied nonprofit administration. So I've always been very mission oriented, very service and community oriented. Um, and after graduating, I had the great fortune to um, receive a number of scholarships and grants and fellowships where I was kind of hopping from one year contracts in one country to another, doing work and everything from education to working with refugees to women's empowerment. So um, over the last four or five years, I've primarily actually been in Southeast Asia um, working there. And um, I was actually working in Myanmar for quite a time where I was working with Buddhist nuns. I read, I read that, that, um, that you actually became, I don't know if that you can ever believe everything you see in the media, but you, be, you actually became a monk. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely um, adopted the precepts while I was living with these women. I thought it was a, a is adopting is adopting the precepts not quite the same as becoming a monk? Um I well, I don't know. It because I wasn't doing it for long term. Um they're a little bit more forgiving too, I think, in, in Buddhism. Like people come, they will live that way of life for a time and then you can leave and you know, no harm, no foul. Yeah. Whereas I think maybe in other religions, you can't just enter, become a nun and then leave. Uh, I read that you cut your hair for the gig. I did, so that was um, one of the precepts and just kind of um, relinquishing all ideas of like identity and trying to embrace this idea of impermanence. And it was really there that I think I adopted this, um, like came to value minimalism and just saw how much you could have um, whenever you had almost nothing. And these women, they they gave everything of themselves to their community. And I think that really planted the seed um, to want to do more and to continue my work um, in service. At the same time that I was in Myanmar though, I was there for like 2016, 2017. Um, that was whenever the initial like attacks on the Rohingya and the expulsion of this group um, began. And I had no idea any of this was happening in my own backyard. Um, and that was really, really painful. And I thought there's got to be something that I can do. Uh, I, I never want, you know, something like that to happen again. And I think that was what really planted the seed to want to work with humanitarian assistance. So long story short, 
I decided I wanted to go back to school to study humanitarian assistance and logistics, found the University of Denver, moved to Colorado in September of 2019 to start my degree there. Um, a few months later, the pandemic happened. And um, yeah, I found myself uh, looking at the world, looking at the, especially being tapped into the humanitarian assistance world, seeing that disasters were still happening, no one was talking about them. And these vulnerable populations were even more um, at risk than, than some other corners of the world. And I thought there's gotta be something that I can do to bring awareness um, to these people and to this, this growing need. So let's, uh, let's stay, let's stay in, in Myanmar for a minute and let's yeah. go to pronunciations again. I hear you pronouncing it differently. Oh, how do you say it? I you hear Myanmar, but I thought you said Myanmar. Oh, Myanmar. Yeah, that's Myanmar. right. Yeah. You should know. You lived there for how long? Um, a little over a year. Yeah. I hear really oppressive things about Myanmar, like to the point where when people buy their cell phones, that certain things are programmed on their phones so that the government can actually feed people what they need to, what they think they need to hear. I don't yeah. know if that's true or not, but uh, <laughs> a lot of problems there, right? Right, and that was actually kind of ironic, you know, I think people think of, um, well, for example, all of the nuns that I lived with, they all had smartphones, um, and all these smartphones are pre-programmed with certain apps, including Facebook, so I still have, you know, they still message me every single day, oh, wow. and uh, it's ironic, I, um, at the beginning of 2020, I actually received a grant to return to Myanmar to continue my work with women's empowerment there. I was supposed to leave last year in October, obviously because of the pandemic that didn't happen. And now given the current climate in Myanmar, I'm not sure that it's yeah. gonna happen anytime soon. Is but. having a cell phone with a Facebook app one of the precepts? <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> but it is, um, I think it, it just feeds into this idea of karma and generosity. So a lot of, of their sponsors, um, would give them very nice gifts. I, I totally believe in it. I'm just poking fun, but it is yeah. interesting how people are able to somehow maintain traditions and, and still move forward. I did some work one time for an Amish tourism bureau in either Indiana or Illinois. And, uh, and they were explaining to me how they can't use, you know, electrical things and, and none of them can own a telephone, but they can walk down to the street to use the telephone there. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay, good interesting work around, you know, I thought you weren't using phones at all, but if you just move out of your own house to go do it, it's okay. Right. But society's moving fast right now. And, you know, you, the Amish tourism board, they, they're in competitive business. They, they have to yeah. keep up somehow. Um, and I think people have to communicate. Look what happens in countries like this um, uh, in Myanmar, where, where you don't keep up on communication. Right. And there are other countries of the world that struggle with this. I, my hat's off, man. Uh, you have your master's in humanitarian assistance. So you know all about the struggles various countries and people are having. Yeah. yeah. I, try, I definitely try to stay tapped in. It's a know. noble line of work. And I know you work for Shelterbox USA. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. That has a nice Venn with Rotary. Are you a Rotarian as well, Brittany? I am not a Rotarian. Okay. No. But I'm a Rotarian and I have a nice Venn with Shelterbox because we, uh, there's like one of our approved vendors, I guess, for the work that Rotary does when different countries are having uh, 
mostly natural challenges, I think, but probably some other types as well. Okay, so you not only uh, through hike the Appalachian Trail, but also the Camino Santiago in España. Yes. How do they compare? Oh, between the Appalachian Trail and the Camino? Gosh, I mean, there's so many differences. Um, I've never been. Well, for one, I found the Camino to be much more beautiful. There's also a lot of different Caminos. There's not just one. Um, Camino, I think, is Spanish for road, isn't it? Yeah, or the way. Yeah, the road. way, okay. So I, I also studied Spanish in university. And so um, I'd studied abroad in Spain, but I had never been to the north of Spain. So this was an amazing opportunity. And I right. actually did the Camino and the Appalachian Trail in the same year. Um, I did the Camino first because... Right. I'd never done anything like that. I didn't know, I knew I wanted to do the Appalachian Trail, but I was like, I don't even know if I like walking for 20 plus miles a day. <laughs> so I should probably go and try this out. And so um, I, I have this reputation for doing everything out of season. So I did the Camino very out of season. I did it in like February and March. Um, and it was incredible. It was a little over 500 miles. Uh, I did the Northern route to the primitive route and it was just beautiful like being it almost looked like being in Wales or Ireland it was so blindingly green and then you know the blue ocean on one side and these green mountains on the other with like these snow-capped mountains it was insanely gorgeous but um you know I think on the Camino I would go through a town at least once a day if not multiple times a day whereas on the Appalachian Trail I might go through a town like every four days or something. And so there, I consider the Camino to be much more of a cultural experience, especially going uh, along that Northern route because you're going through so many distinct provinces in Spain, all yeah. with their own rich history, gastronomy. Some of them even have their own languages up there. Wow. And so um, it was like as someone who had already studied a lot about um, the Iberian Peninsula, it was just such a cool experience to like get in there and, and really get to know some of the locals and see it for myself. So through this process, you found out you liked walking? I do. Yeah, I am a professional walker. <laughs> okay. Um, now there's different types of climbing. Um, uh, for those of uh, the, un you know, the uh, uninitiated in this call, uh, you climb high enough, you need special tools like um, uh, crampons for ice and you need uh, liquid li liquid oxygen canned air um, yeah. at for the 14ers in Colorado are you using oxygen or is it more of a light uh, a lighter hike um well I never used oxygen there are people who do okay. um, but I find you know initially and that was the biggest concern about doing the 14ers because it wasn't like I was climbing 14,000 feet every day. Many of the trailheads start at like 10,000 feet. So it's not as necessarily impressive as it sounds. However, with the added altitude, you do have a lot of extra concerns. Yes. Um, and for my first week, I do remember just feeling very fatigued. You might get a little bit dizzy and just being able to identify um those symptoms and know how like what to do whenever you're feeling that way yeah. I think was very important but I yeah. did adjust to the altitude and it, it didn't end up being such an issue I've watched a lot of the Mount Everest uh, expeditions it's so well yeah. documented now it seems like everybody goes up with a GoPro 
right. and uh, this oxygen deprivation is a thing. Um, yeah, AMS. Uh, which yeah. results in a very serious condition called brain edema, I think. Or, yeah. Cerebral edema. Or, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm not a climber, so you have to kind of course correct me on this stuff. But um, I read that it's so bad, like the, the very first thing that happens when you're suffering from cerebral edema is mm -hmm. your, your, your decision-making power goes away. And that these guys on the mountain, these poor guys, you know, they, they had stored canned air to finish the trip they get to the place where the canned air is, they actually look at the dial on the canned air and they judge it to be empty and right. throw it in the snow because mm -hmm. they're that messed up and it happens that quickly and you don't know what's happening. Uh, for those of you that don't climb, it's kind of like the, uh, the announcement they make on airplanes, put the oxygen mask on yourself first because it, mm -hmm. I, I guess this happens very quickly and then before you know it, you're in it, right, Brittany? Right. Yeah. And did you ever have that? Uh, how, how dizzy, how disoriented were you? Or did you, did you understand what was happening? Um, yeah, I don't think it was ever too extreme. Um, I mean, Everest is like 29,000 feet. I was going up to 14,000 feet. So um, there was one time early on though, where I went in way too hard, too fast, where I was trying to do two 14ers in a day. And this was not, oftentimes you'll see where you can like, cross a ridge and get to another peak. This was not the case. I, I actually had to go up to the top of one, come down and then start again and go up to the top and down. And I did that on like my second day. So not a good idea. And coming down, I was so sick. I did end up like vomiting and stuff. So that's like definitely a, a side effect and right. a huge loss of appetite. Um, you But you have to kind of just force yourself to take in salts, take in in water and make sure that you're you're getting the nutrients you need Otherwise, and reduce altitude as fast as possible and breathe. exactly that's another very important like if you, if you start feeling that way either stop or go down right yeah yeah not pushing on. but even stopping uh may not be enough to right. reset right. you know the uh climbing climbing down is even better um you uh I think we mentioned this before we press record today, but you you did these uh, peaks, these 58 tallest peaks in only 75 days. And uh, you mentioned that that almost everybody does. There are some guys that, and gals probably that climb in extreme conditions, but there's a window of, of uh, weather. Good weather, is that the story? Yeah, I mean, when the peaks don't have snow on them, essentially, right? When they When they do have snow? I do not. So not because that's easier. Yeah. And yeah, you would call that summer climbing conditions. Yeah. And so the summer climbing conditions, the window is July, August, may, like maybe end of June, but really like July, August. And then September is just always a wild card. Like really you could get snow in July and August sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're pushing into September, it could be a huge wild card. And Another issue about climbing here in Colorado during the summer season is that those two months also coincide with what's called monsoon season here. You have monsoons um, in Colorado. I, I I laugh at the term having lived in Southeast Asia. <laughs> Real monsoons. Like, monsoons to me is like the clouds come like apart and then this, I don't know, this, this waterfall comes down. There aren't even drops, right? It's just like this blanket of water. Here, we don't have that. <laughs> you, have, you have monsoon precepts in Colorado. Yeah. 
here a monsoon is um, essentially what you can do is you can guarantee that there's going to be a pretty bad thunderstorm every day from the hours of 12 to three. And so on top of a 14,000 foot peak is not where you wanna be whenever one of these storms rolls in. So that means that you have to always keep a close eye on the weather, be looking at the forecast, but also just use your common sense and know what the signs are in the sky. Um, And also get an early start and plan your hike so that you are not above tree line whenever these storms roll in. Okay. So I was booking it every single day, getting up 3, 4 a.m. One day I think I got up at 1 a.m. to do a hike so that you are up on the peak no later than 11 with the goal of, if not being below tree line, back at your, your car by the time those storms roll in. So that means you're climbing in the dark. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about nice that. I want to get into start. What's that? <laughs> Nice alpine start, as they call it. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that because um, that is a whole other kind of terror, I think, for some people. You know, a lot of people don't want to get up in the middle of the night in their own place, their own domicile yeah. without a nightlight. And here you are waking up in the woods. Let's talk about gear, starting with light uh, in the morning. You're using a helmet light of some sort? Yeah, just a, a headlamp. Mm-hmm. And nothing is too technical, usually in your first hour. Like, Usually these climbs, you're going through the forest. So you're doing some switchbacks. You're on a nice um, marked trail. It's not until you get above tree line that you start to see things like scree or maybe some more technical climbs. Right. And you always want to do that in the daylight. Scree is the loose gravel that makes it hard to get a footing. Yes, that kind exactly. Of thing. Yeah. Lots of that. <laughs> um, what other kinds of gear are you taking? I saw a lot of uh, photos of you climbing and it looked like you were wearing tennis shoes most of the time. Is that possible? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I think this is just something in the long distance hiking community. We often wear trail runners over hiking boots. Is that a brand name? Uh, no, trail runners are just a type of shoe that you would do like long distance runs in the forest with. So okay, I, I for example, hike with Solomon's, that's my trail runner, but there's all kinds of great brands out there that you see. Okay. And you're also taking overnight stuff. So there's a little bit of camping involved with this sleeping bag. Yeah. Uh, Tents. Yeah. So essentially one of the nice things about this project was that almost all of these hikes were day hikes. So I could have all of my, my stuff in my car, essentially. So right. everything that I was carrying in my, my backpack and my box was just stuff that I needed for the day. So looking at layers, water, and snacks. Um, and then I always knew I would be back at my car where I had my camping gear. And like that, this was something I, I felt so spoiled this past summer because having through hiked where you have to really care about how much weight you're carrying, like having a car, I was just like, this is amazing. Like I can carry gas and like, you know, a big, a big um, jet boil and um, I don't know, other utensils and so much food, like canned food and stuff. So I was just, I was like glamping essentially. Like having a- Glamping, yeah, it's like having a yeah. giant footlocker to come home to. Uh, unlike, say, uh, Everest, where you would have various base camps, when you leave right. Everest, you, I don't know how long that is, but it's, it's several days up Everest and back, right? A couple weeks, right. maybe? Yes, a couple weeks, yeah. Yeah. Um, still, it's not too, um, 
not to uh, denigrate the the actual achievement here that you, that which is huge. Now, this backpack that you had uh, was an actual mini shelter box or an actual shelter box. How's that work? Yeah, so ShelterBox has two box sizes. And for those of you who are not familiar with ShelterBox, essentially what they do is they're an international disaster relief organization that provides emergency uh, amenities and like items to individuals and communities who have lost everything as a result of natural disaster, war, or conflict. Um, and so the idea is that they can fit all of these items into these iconic turquoise boxes. And yeah, they come in two sizes. There's like a 180 liter one and a 60 liter one, or maybe it's 160 liter and 80 liter. I always get them mixed up. Okay. I had smaller one. So I just kind of took that and attached it to a metal frame and hiked with that box up to every peak. So if you Google Brittany Woodrum, you'll see pictures of Brittany, all kinds of pictures with her with this like plastic box on her back. But but for those that haven't seen the graphic, can you describe the dimensions of the box for those of us that can't do the leader thing? Yeah. Um, I bet you can yeah. describe it intimately. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that box and I, we are like best friends now. Oh my it, gosh. It's, got a name. it's named Boxan, for example. So me and his name is His name is Boxan? Yeah. Oh, that's hysterical. We we're very close, but um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's like a giant kind of Tupperware, or what would you call that? Like a giant container that you would uh, you would use to store stuff in your garage or something. But it's not. Um, when I saw it strapped to your back, I, I didn't think of it as being very comfortable because it's yeah. it's by definition it's a box. It's square. A lot yeah. of packs these days, you know, they're contoured to your body. You can strap them a certain way so they don't jiggle when you walk. This right. had to be a bitch. I mean, what kind of rack did you have it on, you know, to put it on your back? The, the rack itself was not even that comfortable, to be honest. But you just adjust. You figure out, like, your body learns where your equilibrium equilibrium is um with that giant thing on but the thing is, is it wasn't that heavy like again I wasn't carrying that much stuff every single day so the dry weight of the box so without anything was only eight pounds so that's the box with the, the frame yeah um, but I also fashioned it with like a, a platypus um bladder so I, I had like a little straw and water. Um, and then, you know, with all of my gear every single day, I don't think it weighed more than 14 pounds. Um, however, it was bulky. And that was probably the biggest issue uh, on some of the technical climbs, for example, like I literally could not fit through some of the, the crevices that we had to get through. Oh, so like we would tie a rope around it at some points and like someone would climb it first and then haul it up. Or, you know, once you get above tree line, it's often very, very windy on some of these peaks. And so yeah. it acted like a giant sail. And so that was another concern. I had to always be looking at not only what the weather was going to be doing in in terms of like if it was going to be storming or not, but what were the gust levels and what was the wind going to be? So, um, wow. And I also also thought about balance as I was reading up on you. You know, because again, a lot of these backpacks they're they're contoured to the body, they're they're tight to your body. What happens when you've got this chunk of plastic hanging off the back when you're climbing? climbing. I mean, you have to adjust for that as well, I'm sure. Yeah. And I mean, you have to really know 
your surroundings. Like there were sometimes like some of these mountains are truly technical where you are doing some rock climbing moves. And wow. there were a couple of times, you know, you're always like wearing a helmet and stuff, but I would see where I was going to grab and like you commit to it, you go to do the jump, but you don't realize there's a rock that's going to hit the box and you just get like shot back down. Um, so that was, I had to learn very quickly um, wow. with that. But um, yeah, you know, the, the box, this was not, it was not meant to be super comfortable. Uh, it definitely was not lightweight. It was not ultra light, as we say. Um, and yeah, it did not share weight very well. So there were some climbs where I actually had to hike into a basin to camp for a couple of days to knock out, you know, there might be like four or five mountains in this little basin. So you just hike in, camp there, and then knock them out. But that also meant I had to carry all my camping gear and my sleeping bag and stuff, which while they are, they were very light, um, the box did not share the weight very nicely like most backpacks do. Yeah. So those were always really rough days whenever I would have to carry like 20 plus pounds in the box. Well, I'm a marketing guy. So I right away appreciated why you did it. I mean, you, you wouldn't do it for comfort. You wouldn't do it for uh, uh, ease. Right. Uh, you would do it for the marketing and you're a good employee and you're, you, you're smart because I think it probably got you a lot more press than it would have gotten otherwise. Just this photo of you carrying this thing on your back and your bright white teeth smiling. It was just so charming. <laughs> I right. first read about you in the week magazine, which, uh, which we subscribe to here. And it helps me understand how to pronounce countries like Myanmar. <laughs> <laughs> but you also were in people magazine, Washington post, uh, yeah kinds of local uh, publications in Colorado. Uh, mm -hmm. How did that feel to get that kind of attention? Did, did, and that you did it also to raise money. Um, did, you, did you meet your money goal? And how did that fit in with the, with the uh, publicity? Yeah. So I guess to start with, in terms of the, the press, like that was just mind boggling to me because this entire project came together so quickly. It was not like we were planning this for a year. No, no like, you'd only been in Colorado a little while. Yeah, right. And well, here's the thing is I became a shelter box ambassador in like September, whenever I moved to Colorado. Um, and I quickly learned that many of the other ambassadors already had this reputation for taking on these crazy physical challenges with the box. So it's not like my, my story is anything new or crazy. No one's ever taken it up a mountain, but there are people who have done equally, if not more insane things with this box. Yeah. And as someone who loves to combine my passion for the outdoors with my passion of service, it was just like, obviously I'm gonna do something sometime. Um, it's not so much a question of if, but like when. Right. Didn't know what that thing was going to be. And I was in grad school, so I had zero time and I did not think I would be doing anything anytime soon um, until COVID happened. And all of a sudden I had this free summer and I saw this rising need around the world. And I was like, this is, this is the moment. This is like a sign from God. I have to do it now. And so um, I think I mentioned it to Shelterbox in like late April. And then all of May was just are we doing this? Yes. No, I don't know. Like, let's get the promo material. Is this even feasible? No one does all these mountains in a year. I had never even climbed a 14 er So we're like, can you even do this? Um, so just working out the logistics and really seeing if we're committing or not. And then June was just 
physical training, getting all the food prep and all the like routing and um, planning um, finalized. And then in July, I finally started. Um, so I really did not think that this project was going to gain any traction at all. I didn't think that anyone was even going to hear about it or know about it. Um, so whenever news outlets started to like pick it up, it was almost like it snowballed. And this was so cool because it started out slow, but then, you know, as I, I as the summer progressed, it was just this huge thing by the end of the by the end of the project, which felt really good. Yeah, um, nice piece of it was the the fact you were raising money for charity. Yeah, totally. But that's always a crapshoot. You know, you name a number that some sort of stretch goal, I suppose, and then you cross your fingers and hope that the donations come in. Yeah. Hope the hope the publicity feeds that so that you're getting contributions from people maybe you haven't even met. How did right. the money piece come together? Yeah. So um, my goal was to raise $1,400 right, in line with like four, 14ers. Um, so $1,400 per That's mill. so sweet. <laughs> so um, the, uh, yeah, if you do some quick math, 1,400 times 58 is about $82,000. So that was okay. my goal. And I was like, I'm never going to make that. Like, again, if I, but for me, that was very much a, a side goal. I was just happy to be out there raising awareness yeah. for a cause that I cared about. So I thought if I raise $5,000, I'll be happy with this. Yeah. Um, however, <laughs> beyond my wildest dreams as well, not only did I meet my goal, I surpassed it. Um, and donations are still coming in. And I think to date, we've raised just short of $100,000. Good all for you all being donated to Shelterbox's COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund. I mean, a lot of this was due to Rotary. So um, as you already mentioned, Shelterbox has a very close relationship with Rotary. Shelterbox was actually started out of a Rotary club just as like a small little club project. That, great, um, great Britain, yeah. Yeah, in England. Yeah. So that's where their headquarters is. And, um, you know, we, we have a lot of ambassadors with Shelterbox who are Rotarians. And so one of the good things about doing this in the midst of COVID was that everyone was online, everyone was virtual. So I was giving, not a lot of people realize this, I was giving presentations while I was out there doing this project to Rotary Club. Sometimes I even did them on the peaks, like I had my phone and was Zooming. Surprisingly, you get pretty good cell reception at 14,000 feet wow. and was able to give them like these 360 views as I was doing so. And um, one, of, one of my strategies to raise funds was to actually offer like mountain sponsorships where if a club or an individual wanted to sponsor a mountain by donating $1,400, I would actually take something of theirs, like a banner or a token to the top, give them a shout out and um, yeah, like take a photo with, with their item. Brilliant. And, um, it, you know, people here in Colorado are very proud of their mountains. And so a lot of the Rotary clubs started getting kind of competitive, like we've got to get this one before these, this group does, or, um, you know, they were, they were just, there was like this nice camaraderie, like this, um, kind of fun com competition, yeah. um, amongst the clubs and, yeah, and then it grew, you know, a lot of clubs beyond Colorado sponsored and, uh, that was just so cool. And I, I never, ever expected that. Well, we'll wrap up, of course, with contact information for Shelterbox. But if you are excited about Brittany's campaign and you would like to donate, uh, what's the best way for people to do that, Brittany? Yeah, um, 
definitely head on over to Shelterbox's website. So that's www.shelterboxusa.org. And if you want to go to my site, it's that same website, just slash 14ers, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-E-E-N-E-R-S. Um, and I would definitely recommend that you go on over to the Facebook page. Uh, you can find um, updates on what I'm doing. Um, one of the things I feel confident about is that these peaks will not be the last peaks that me and that box see together. So definitely stay tuned for our, my and Boxan's next adventure. Um, but yeah, if you just look up the 14ers project on Facebook, you should be able to find it there. Uh, I just can't get over the fact you did 58 14ers in 75 days. It's an amazing commitment. Um, and I, I just think you're so inspirational, not just to people in general, but women in particular. Have you been hearing more from women about, I mean, do women find a special place in their heart for you because you're a, 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 somehow a suitable or even an exemplary role model for them? Yeah, you know, definitely. And I think that was another part of this project. Um, I didn't, I never, I still don't consider myself to be an expert hiker or climber by right. any means, but I think you just have to find what your passion is and go out and do it. And you're bound to find other people who share that passion and who are going to help you along the way. Yeah. And then if you're also someone who's interested in a fundraiser, there's no better way to raise funds for a cause that you care about than to combine your passions. Yeah. And that's what I've had success with over the years. And um, yeah, I, that's, I think that's what I get a lot of. Like, how are you able to, to pull off a fundraiser like this? And it all just, it starts with your passions finding out what those are and then utilizing them to, to bring awareness to that cause. Well, you're amazing. I'm so glad we had a chance to, to visit today and I hope our paths cross again, preferably not on a mountain, but I hope we get a chance to meet up and maybe even uh, see you on the speaking circuit. Have, have you, society hasn't quite opened up from the pandemic yet, but I assume you're gonna get a lot of speaking invitations. We'll see. Um, I think that I might have a few virtual rotary, um, well, beyond clubs, but like, um, district meetings coming up that I might be presenting at. So that's oh man, pretty- no, We're going to get you to the real, real events is what I'm saying. <laughs> that would be, be fun. fantastic. I have a new slogan for you for Box Ann. Oh, please. She's got my back. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Another hashtag we have is go Vert with Bert. So. Oh, I love um, it. I love it. Yeah. Definitely so uh, more information, everybody, at shelterboxusa.org. You can also find Brittany pretty easily on social. That's where we connected. Uh, I'm so grateful that you, uh, that you had time to do the podcast today. You're an inspiration, and we're all so proud of you, and we can't wait to see what other adventures you're going to take us, take us on, at least virtually, so we can learn from you. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michael, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in. See you later. Nice job. Awesome. Any other questions or business?